0: Welcome to Lennon Lopate at Large, I'm Leonard Lopate. Erica Abiel's latest novel, The Commune, is both a delicious satire and a romana clay that looks at the early days of the women's movement of the 1970s. It focuses on a group house on Long Island where a collective of feminists planned the women's strike for equality in August of 1970 while struggling with their own romantic relationships. Ms. Abiel is Professor Emeritus of French Literature at CUNY, also, reviews filmed for online journals. The Commune is published by Adelaide Books. I'm very pleased that it brings Eric Abiel to our show now. Welcome.
1: Nice to be here, Leonard.
0: In the past, you've written semi autobiographical novels about your life in the 50s and 60s at a women's college, living in Paris with the Beat, and with Yoko Ono in New York. Is this novel a continuation of that saga?
1: Uh, It's actually much more of a uh, history-based novel uh, in which I try to recreate uh, the era of the early 70s, 1970. And it's not particularly autobiographical. Uh, I did know some of those uh, players in the commune in 1970. That was Betty Friedan's group house in the Hamptons. But I would not say that the uh, book is, is particularly autobiographical. It's based on real people, a couple of them at least, certainly the Betty Friedan character, whom I call Gilda. But she's very much tweaked to serve the purposes of the satire.
0: Now, yeah, you weren't, you didn't attend this, uh, this group meeting, did you?
1: Well, I was in and out of it. Uh,
0: did I was you think it was funny proper... at the time? Because you've written a satiric comic novel here.
1: At the time, it was exciting because it felt like it was on the cutting edge of enormous changes, which did indeed come to pass. However, was it funny? I would call it more fun and exciting. Mm-hmm. But in writing about it, I was looking for the humor, looking back on it.
0: The story begins and ends with the Women's Strike for Equality on August 26, 1970, on the 50th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment. Um, it was sponsored by NOW, the National Organization for Women. Is it now seen as the beginning of the women's liberation movement of the 1970s?
1: I think it absolutely was. In that period, it wasn't clear whether feminism had really taken hold, whether where there was a uh, Uh, a quantity of women out there ready to to sign on with the feminist ideals but um gilda my my betty friedan character and her communards were determined to put on this strike or march it was called variously Mm -hmm. to prove the fact of our existence the existence of feminism before then it was not clear even that women would show up for the march. In the very first scenes, it looks like just a few stragglers are appearing, and then the thing just multiplies. Basically, that march, I would say, I think it's fair to say, it launched second wave feminism. Hmm.
0: Now, Gilda is a middle aged, frumpish man, you <laughs> say sir. Uh, She's also a tireless organizer, constantly fretting about permits and whether to call the action the Women's Strike or the Women's March. Are all of those discussions and uh, actions taken from real life?
1: Well, I did an enormous amount of research. And, of course, women, they almost dominated the publishing scene at that time. So there were reams and reams of pages to look at. And, uh, yes, that was a real concern because the, uh, to call it a strike, would have alienated and frightened too many people if women were being asked to walk off the job. And they actually shifted the time to after uh, five o'clock so that uh, people could leave their offices, women could leave without getting fired. So a way of kind of um, softening the whole event was to call it a march instead of a strike. And in effect, uh, that was a real debate at the time. I took a lot of uh, the details in the book from real research. So it's very, very authentically based.
0: Could you have written it as a a history? But you wouldn't have had any of the funny stuff.
1: No, the humor was all mine. uh, so many books about feminism are dour and preachy and uh, angry. I wanted to write something funny that would be like a rump, an antic rump. It was actually inspired by a couple of things. I love Vile Bodies by Evelyn Waugh, and I wanted to capture that irreverent, antic spirit.
0: Most of the action of the novel takes place in the months leading up to the strike in a communal house called Cormorant Cove in in the fictional Long Island town of Old Islesford, spelled with two Ds at the end, Uh, obviously based on East Hampton?
1: Absolutely. And the The, house,
0: is that based on a real house?
1: Yes, it is, but it was a composite. In fact, uh, I was out there recently and I passed the original house but I melded that. Uh, the original house in, was in Wainscot and it was called Sheldrake Cove and it was right on Georgia Pond, which also figures in the novel in, in a couple of scenes. It was melded with something called the Drew House, which is in East Hampton, which was owned by a theatrical impresario at one time and actually had an organ up in the eaves. Ooh. So I, I wanted a kind of a spooky atmosphere which the Drew House certainly had, it seemed quite ghostly in its way, because I have a uh, kind of a a murder plot running uh, through the second and third acts of the novel.
0: Was the house actually called the commune by the people there?
1: Uh, Yes, it was uh, uh, Betty Friedan and her sidekick, whom I call Fred, came up with that name. And the the, the groupers basically glorified groupers called themselves communards. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my heroine Leora thinks that for that is just too precious and pretentious for words. And then she's in for a surprise when she arrives there for the first dinner and they've gone even farther and they call, uh, they have appellations for everyone, such as, um, uh, the, the Duke of dishwashing and the, uh, um, boyar of uh, whatever, and she uh, <laughs> thinks that her initial impression of the preciosity is uh, is increased when, once she actually attends the, her first dinner there.
0: They call themselves communards, but they're mostly writers. Uh, on, th- there's a house rule that forbids them from writing about the group. Is that partly why you've written this as a novel and not as a... As uh, a, just a work of history.
1: Well, I I could have I, I really was able to have much more fun with it as a novel. There was no reason to write it as nonfiction, because I wanted humor and I wanted uh, the license to exaggerate and create my own characters. Several of the main characters are are purely creatures of my imagination. They they, but they represented people who would have existed then women and men, their attitudes and their desires and conflicts. Uh, yes, I, I know the scene you're referring to where Gilda says, it is not permitted to write about this. However, my heroine Leora decides to parse that in a certain way.
0: She takes notes and, uh,
1: and, and, and she does take notes. And she's but she's understanding that she would convey it as fiction and that would make that uh, more acceptable.
0: Now, uh, in your book- But just
1: as, as an, uh, yeah. uh, 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 an afterthought to that, I was giving a, uh, a signing in Sag Harbor and the actual real daughter of Betty Friedan showed up there because uh, the original house that, that Betty eventually bought is in Sag Harbor. And she announced angrily, hmm. "Hello, I am Becca Gladstone. That's the name I give to, <laughs> I give to Gilda's daughter, who is not in the least like the real daughter." So I took a lot of um, writerly license with, hmm. with this material.
0: Yeah, but I it, guess she, was she offended by the way you had depicted her mother?
1: No, you know, she, it wasn't that so much. She was bothered by the fact that. I didn't reveal enough of the love in the commune. Mm. Now, you know, I didn't really need to go there because I was writing a satire and I didn't need to dwell on the love. Although I think that at some point I showed that they were really uh, a a like-minded community at, at certain times, but mainly I had a lot of fun with all the backbiting and competition and pettiness, better material.
0: Now, in your book, group houses are illegal in the town, but this one is allowed because the occupants are all either famous or glamorous or both. Was that true to real life?
1: Well, in in real life, uh, really, the, the groupers were just beginning out there. It was 1970. Now they're all over the place or maybe less so since the pandemic. But at that time, it was kind of unusual for a group house to have this middle-aged people among and also uh, young people as well, but also demi uh, celebrities, you know, public intellectuals. And uh, as I say early on, the town board was was too um, inefficient to do much about it. but it was frowned upon until later on when people when uh, people like Ethel Skull and various wealthy uh, matrons out there started giving fundraisers, for the commune and, uh, or for, rather for the March because they wanted to be in on this exciting thing, which they sensed, they could hear the drumbeat of a mighty change occurring in the culture. And they wanted to be in on it.
0: Well, it did have an impact. Uh, although the wars, <laughs> the battle is continuing to this day.
1: Yes, they certainly do. <laughs> so, uh, it was not uh, the issues that they were addressing were not entirely resolved, but there have been enormous changes. The entire culture has changed. In fact, Betty Friedan had a, a wonderful phrase for it. She called that the march and the resulting culture, a, a quantum leap in consciousness. So a, an enormous amount has changed.
0: Her rival for leadership of the movement is a, a character named Monica Fairley who never actually appears in the book and is clearly based on Gloria Steinem. Yes. Uh, Gilda sees Monica is trying to steal the spotlight from her and is angry at the media for focusing on the younger, more attractive woman. Did, did Betty really hate Gloria as much as Gilda hates Monica? Uh,
1: I, I think that it's fair to say that Gilda really did hate her and was in a constant state of fury at what she perceived as uh, the usurper. Mm -hmm. She perceived her as the usurper of what she herself had started, had nurtured, had created. And then along comes this beautiful, much younger woman, beloved of the media, and really took it away from her. Uh, Gilda did not want to pass the torch in the least. It was yanked out of her hands and uh, uh, the Hulu series touched on some of that material. But I in the commune, I go much more deeply into it. I really wanted to explore the rage that the the Friedan Gilda character had. at having created this thing, it was her baby. She really brought it into being and then midstream it's taken away from her and she sees it happening she's prescient because she sees you know as as monica Fairley rises she perceives that she will be forced to give up her position as figurehead of feminism and indeed that's what happened
0: although we still remember betty Friedan's name and the fact that she was an important figure in this fight
1: You know, a lot of younger people don't.
0: Hmm.
1: I've given talks where, you know, people, let's say under 30, do not particularly know who she is, although they all know who Gloria Steinem is. Now, the Gloria Steinem figure I decided not to put on stage. Gloria is practically, she's an icon. And I didn't want to subject that particular person to any kind of, Sarcasm or humor—the the satirical aspect, which dominates the whole novel.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large, here on WBAI New York, ninety-nine point five FM, streaming live at wbai.org, is Erica Abil. Uh, we, she's the author of five books, uh, including a number of uh, acclaimed novels, uh, and now we are discussing her latest. The Commune, which is published by Adelaide Books. Now, Gilda is also, well, she uh, doesn't like any (laughs) attractive women, uh, really. She hates any women who are better looking than she is and sees all women as rivals for eligible men. Doesn't that seem to contradict her feminist ideals?
1: Well... All the humor, for the most part, in this novel is based on those contradictions. Hmm. As I like to describe it, they talk the talk, but they are constantly hmm. whipsawed, these these early pioneering feminists, between the ideals of the past and romantic love and putting a man at the center of your life.
0: Well, they're the creatures of, they're creatures of their time. I mean... Um, I- they grew up in a certain culture, and uh, they're trying to change it. But at the same time, they are affected by it. No,
1: exactly, exactly. They they are uh, in, imbued with its values, even in the same moment that they're reaching toward a future set of values and trying to bring them into being. So they are. My characters are very, very conflicted. Hmm. They have one foot in the past, and the other reaching towards the uh, stretching towards the future and somebody like gilda is basically completely man-centric and at the same time that she is uh preaching about the importance of uh sisterhood she called she was very fond of that word and she liked women capital w more than she liked individual women and i exaggerate that in the party scenes where she's chasing after the heroine's love interests etc at the same time if you want to look at the real free dan character that this is based on she certainly had good female friendships so i'm exaggerating these things
0: but sh- more disturbing gilda also has a homophobic streak and she thinks that lesbians give the women's movement a bad name so, yeah, so she really was wasn't called, as much of a feminist as, as she was claiming.
1: No, well the the whole, the whole humor of this is that people were claiming to be feminists, female male feminists too and uh, that was that was their talk. They could talk the talk but they did not behave in a way that would support that. So that's what the humor is based on. So while while uh, Gilda is is preaching for the rights of women and, and richer lives for women and sisterhood. She's pursuing men at the same time. She is uh, um, homophobic and referred to lesbians as the lavender menace. And this goes back <laughs> to your point about the fact that these are, are people who came from an earlier time, and they are still very much imbued with the values of the, the conservatism and the homophobia of the fifties. And so, She referred to, uh, she even imagined a plot of uh, lesbians sending someone to seduce her to discredit the movement. I think that what was going on there was that uh, the, the Friedan, the real character, was very political and understood the dynamics of creating a movement. And she wanted to bring in the mainstream of America, the American heartland, the women out there. And she felt that. Uh, embracing all the lesbianism, which was starting to appear at the time and be celebrated, she feared that would alienate her constituents. She wanted to build up the movement. So I don't think she was, she was not personally homophobic so much as politically astute at that time. And then we know that later on with Gloria Steinem, uh, Steinem, uh, the Monica Fairley character, opens up the the tent, brings more people into the tent. And that is one reason for her success.
0: At the time, were the women's rights, gay rights and civil rights movements seen as more separate than they are today?
1: Well, I think that the the women's movement was was a a thing unto itself and uh, addressing issues that had never been addressed before and doing it in, in, in a, a really daring way, because the whole culture really was aligned against it. If you look at, uh, I did research on how the media reacted to femi- feminism in that period, and all they did was mock it and belittle it. They said things like, uh, you know, they would toss off phrases like "a bunch of braless bubbleheads." Hmm. And uh, I, I believe that Gloria Steinem once appeared on the David Susskind show. Um, and he said something like, why doesn't she just relax and find herself a nice guy? Ooh. So, there, so there, were, there were so many, there was so much hostility and mockery out there towards this movement. So I think that it was very much contained within itself and focused on its own goals.
0: The story is mostly told from the point of view of Leora Voss, a struggling freelance writer and single mom with two young children who comes to the house as a guest and becomes involved with the planning and the group. Um, I, I would have guessed that uh, that might have been semi-autobiographical, but you kind of discouraged me from thinking that way at the beginning of this interview.
1: Well, I think that Leora is the exception. You know, research is very time-consuming, and sometimes it's more uh, efficient uh, time-wise to use yourself as material because you don't have to research it. Now, I wanted a, I wanted a character in there who would be a, a counter voice to all the feminist um, preaching and speechifying. And Leora partly shares my background, but Leora is mainly she's functioning in the in the novel as a contrar- uh, contrarian and slight Weisenheimer. She's sort of a, a Shlomil figure. Mm-hmm. She has already lived much of the I the ideas of feminism in her own life. And she has circled back. She's ended up uh, uh, separated with two young children and no money. And she has circled back to the old ideal of the wedding plot, she calls it, which is what, you know, the way Jane Austen novels were referred to. They, They were always centered around a wedding plot. And she also decided that it should be called the health benefits plot because she uh, didn't really have money to live properly, and she was looking for a partner.
0: Yes. Well, she's she's gotten tired of living in a squalid apartment in the East Village and is actively looking for a husband, preferably one with money, but she's also trying to reconcile her quest for personal freedom with the need to support her young family, uh, which is a dilemma that many women have faced.
1: Exactly, and, and she has an arc through the book, even though she starts out with the goal of uh, marrying somebody who could afford at least to help heat the apartment. That was her big goal in life, because she had had, had, had an accident involving one of her children due to a, um, a badly maintained furnace. So her idea of hope, luxury, was to have a functioning furnace uh, in the building. And uh, she's Even though she seems uh, initially like a kind of a a grasping, calculating character, the fact is that she does have a moral center. And at one of these parties uh, that her her wealthy ex-boyfriend, the Gatsby, the Polish Gatsby figure is throwing, at one of these parties, she asks herself, am I a gold digger? Because if I were, I couldn't live with myself. And she decides, no, she's not a gold digger. She's just a tin digger or a scrap iron digger.
0: You were a dancer around this time, weren't you? Or had you already given that career up?
1: Uh, I was no longer a dancer. No, I was, I gave that up after I left college and went to live in Paris as an expat. I stopped dancing. But, you know, it stays with you. I think that once a dancer, you're always a dancer. I still take classes, I do Pilates, and I still feel like a dancer. And I like to think that there's a certain sprightliness to the the prose I was after in this novel that that reflects something dancey.
0: Now, it's now more than 50 years since these events took place. So would you want people to see this as a historical novel in some way?
1: Well, I think it would be classified as near historical, but I think that it's what's important about it. What's what's relevant about it is that it really is is a pivotal point at which an entire culture shifted, and before then, it was an entirely different world. So, so these are the people. I, I when I started to write the book, I was interested in exploring who were these people who could make this happen who could create a revolution and it happened it was building and building but it happened fast after that and i wanted to know who they were and i thought that they were when i thought back about what i knew about it and the characters i planned to uh, invent that they were extremely flawed people they were and this is part of the humor is that they were very very self-seeking and ambitious to a fault, hyper ambitious, and backbiting and petty and almost verging towards criminality and, and silly, dopey. And yet they managed to transform the culture. And I, I found that fascinating. Who were these people who were able to do this? They were not what one would traditionally think of as heroic or exemplary.
0: But uh, if we look at history, uh, so many of the people who are really important—for uh, example, in the uh, the history of the United States—George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln—they were all flawed people as well, and yet they did good things, and they also sometimes didn't do good things. So why yes. should we hold anybody up to anybody up to a higher standard? Is there anybody out there who is perfect? Other than you and me?
1: <laughs> well, I, I don't think I could answer that question, but I can tell you that these that these communards were far from perfect. Mm-hmm. And they they would uh, the, the, the theme that runs through it is how they try to convert everything to their own advantage. And it, what fascinated me is that despite that grievous character flaw, they were able to, to make something good come of it. And I, was, I got goose flesh actually writing the last scene of the, the march, which finally gets pulled together and more and more women are pouring down Fifth Avenue. And it was forbidden by the mayor, by the way. More they than just women,
0: like, there were men like me on the march. Were you there? Yeah, sure.
1: <laughs> so you remember it? Of course. Well, I wasn't there. so I, I used to research. go on all those
0: marches. I went on peace march. I went on every march.
1: Okay. Well, then you're in there because I do mention a, a few men. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they appear early on. But the stress really is on the solidarity that the women are feeling. And there was, uh, from what my research showed, a certain amount of hostility coming from men on the sidewalks who were saying, you know, the, 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 the brawless bubblehead bubblehead crowd. And men were kind of freaking out. In fact, one of my characters, Nadine, has written a book that becomes a bestseller in the novel, which basically explores the angst that men were feeling, you know, uh, uh, by, uh, from the movement, how, how they were felt completely undermined in their sexuality and their self-worth, et cetera. So I think I captured some of that hostility in, in the march. I tried to recreate that whole scene I wish I'd been there with you.
0: Would this have been a very different book if you'd written it in the 1970s?
1: Yes. I think that it was much too close then. And I think that what the distance has given me is the ability to find the humor and the satire in it. I love satire. And I find that books today, so much fiction is so grim and it's not Mm. funny and it's it's worthy, but it's not funny. I we live in such difficult, painful times, and I wanted to kind of lighten that atmosphere with, with the humor that I was going for in this in this novel. You're listening to and Leonard, I'm told that it's funny.
0: You're listening to Leonard pit at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org.
1: I am the woman. In numbers too big too.
0: With Erica Beal, the author of five books, including the acclaimed novels Wild Girls, uh, Women Like Us, and the autofiction memoir Only When I Laugh. Uh, she is a f- former dancer, as I pointed out, but also is a professor emeritus of French literature at City University here in New York. And uh, the latest book is called The Commune, a novel uh, published by Adelaide Books. You had a lot of fun with some of the names, um, uh, like Joe Beth Mankiller, who's a militant lesbian, Kaz Grabowski, a Polish nouveau riche businessman, Fred Lustman, a, a philandering writer. Uh, were you taking a cue from Dickens there?
1: Well, uh, w- one reviewer mentioned Dickens, but actually, <laughs> I insist I that with uh, Evelyn Waugh. Mm -hmm. that inspired me, and um, uh, Vile Bodies is filled with funny names like that. In fact, i borrowed a couple, but I mean, there's names like Lord Chasm, and and, uh, really very funny names. But also, I was was making fun of the uh, Anglophilia that dominated uh, the Hamptons, which I call Islesford, because that was part of the Anglophilia, to have the double D on the end, Mm -hmm. and to uh, make like they were in England. The signifier was that English meant class, and there was a lot of new new money pouring in there. And so, to kind of make it classier, there there was an Anglophilia, so that you know a a a new bistro could open up called the Spotted Dick, which Mm. is actually Mm. the name of an English dessert. Uh And And there there was a real one.
0: There was really a place with that name, or. Or that's it's No, like it's, it's made up.
1: It's oh. actually the name of a dessert.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: then um, there was a place uh, in the book called, that I called Shittington Grange, hmm. which is very close to the original of someplace in England. So I was having fun with all those names and the basic, the snobbery and the pretensions of the, the, uh, the moneyed classes out there.
0: Do the other characters, magazine editor Terry Cameron, conservative pundit Sebastian Nye, Feminist writer Nadine Kuznets and celebrity photographer Edwina Scahill also have real-life counterparts? Or
1: yes. Or are, are they com- uh,
0: composites of people who lived in the house who were involved in the women's movement?
1: Well, Edwina is completely made up. But I wanted a I wanted a woman in, in, in the novel who would fall in love with another woman and have a lesbian relationship. and She falls in love with a, an art historian, a female art historian who is exploring the notion of the male gaze, which was very important mm-hmm. at that time. I'm, I'm, I was trying to recreate the whole culture of that era. And, and one of them uh, focused on this issue of the male gaze in art. The other characters, they were, uh, Nadine is based on someone who actually wrote a book about the anguish that men were feeling uh, uh, over feminism. Who else did you just mention?
0: I also mentioned uh, Terry Cameron and Sebastian. Yes, Terry.
1: Nye. Yes, uh, Terry Cameron, and his editor, this the sphere's editor with the three testicle voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- those characters are based on figures in New York Magazine. New York Magazine was extremely important at the time, mm-hmm. and it's it it runs it it becomes. The locus of Leora's ambitions. She wants, she dreams of, of writing a substantial piece for them. And they were, uh, they had a, a, a an influence that magazines no longer have. They, they were, they basically, they promoted the idea that the, the wealthy and the successful were way better off than you were. And you, by reading about them, you could experience uh, intense, envy and this this would be a sort of pleasure a painful pleasure
0: have uh, at any of your book signings or other events have you heard from people who suspect that you've based a character on them
1: no no they was just betty friedan's actual daughter but no uh none of these to be honest it's really kind of sad uh they're mostly dead
0: uh-huh well, we are uh, talking about them, fifty years ago, and these were uh, adults. So
1: yes, some of them were in their forties then. So, uh, but largely, uh, there I would say that Edwina, who's one of my very favorite characters, is entirely made up. And I wanted I wanted someone who would uh, try to make her life in this alternative lifestyle uh, in a lesbian relationship, and I wanted to to take that. Uh, as a storyline and see where I could go with it. Well, and I'm not going to give away what happens there, but it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting to me. And, it, I, and I, won't I, it it. <laughs> I won't give it away either.
0: I won't give it away either. All of the communards seem to have relationship issues, many of them recovering from recent breakups. Was the real commune, like the fictional one, kind of a halfway house for divorcees?
1: Yes, it definitely was. And I think that Betty Friedan originally had a very nice idea. She and her and her sidekick Fred, which was to create a community for people who were uh, divorced or separated, no longer attached, and rather than jump back into a bad marriage, they would have a, a place to go where they could feel that they were in a communal setting, that they were in a kind of elected family, and could show up for breakfast and their fuzzy old bathrobes and make weird omelettes and have fun together, create a, a home-like situation uh, that they could, they could have found formerly only in their marriages. And essentially, one of the running jokes through the novel is that despite these claims for solidarity, you know, Fred says early on, we all root for each other's success. The fact is that they were deeply, deeply competitive, especially Fred, mm-hmm. who falls over in a dead faint when one of the communards gets a uh, good uh, review of his book in the New York Times. And they were uh, deeply competitive and yet drawn together by this, through this ideal of Friedanz that they could create an elective family.
0: Do you think that the women's movement forced women and men to face hard truths about their own relationships?
1: Well, I think that at the time, there was a lot of a a, a kind of almost pressure for women to fulfill their own potential. And in order to do that, one of the beliefs was that you couldn't have a romantic relationship. You had to walk out of the marriage in order to fulfill your own potential and uh, i refer to that in the novel as the period of the great wife walkouts (laughs) women were leaving in droves because they couldn't fulfill themselves they couldn't grow with a boring husband a sexist marriage etc and what happened was that a lot of those women were very ill prepared for work and they ended up uh, on welfare. And in fact, there was a, sto- a cover story. And I, ha- I refer to this. Actually, I have a character based on a woman who was the cover story of New York magazine, who left her boring, dre- dreary husband with three children. There was a picture of her with her stroller and um, one in the stroller and two walking with her. She left the marriage and uh fell on really hard times, you know, and in my novel, I have uh, the heroine recognizing her on a breadline. So I I do think this was a period where social ideals put a lot of pressure on women that they may have come to regret later. And it's one of the obsessions of the heroine. She's haunted by the fact that women are here together. They're all marching together. The sisterhood is wonderful. The solidarity is wonderful, but when push comes to shove, are there, is someone, are some of them going to be left standing alone on the parade ground?
0: Still, something that people have to deal with today. Um, I think I think so. Each chapter, well, I guess as long as we have marriages and, and uh, things that are institutionalized, we're going to have those uh, complications arise. Each chapter begins with quotes from Jane Austen, Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem, uh, Andrea Dworkin, even Valerie Solanus, um, uh, dealing with the, the various issues women face, not all complaints.
1: No, uh, I had a lot of fun with the quotes and, uh, there are some fairly outrageous ones. The one about some Andrea Dworkin
0: mm-hmm. and, uh, you mean sharing a bed?
1: <laughs> no, a- Andrea Dworkin, uh, I think it's in the very first, let's see, it's, it's right at the very start. She says, um, I want to see a man beaten to a bloody pulp Ooh. with a high heel shoved in his mouth, like an apple in the mouth of a pig. So the, that was reflect uh, reflective of a lot of the anger that women felt at the time. And, Essentially, she's been uh, rehabilitated. Uh, she died a while ago. She was cl- clinically obese mm. and she was often cited as a worst case feminist. Oh, the, the other feeling going around among you know, the, the wags in the media was that only uh, feminists were basically women who were too unattractive to get a guy. And they always cited poor Andrea Dworkin but she's been reinstated now as a a great authentic voice of the period.
0: One of the quotes is from Jane Austen. Single women have a dreadful propensity for being poor, which is one very strong argument in favor of matrimony. And that's echoed by Gloria Steinem's quote. Most women are one man away from welfare. So I guess things haven't changed all that much in the past 200 years.
1: Well, th- those quotes, yes, uh, do do reflect that. But on the other hand, they the quotes are there for other reasons. I was trying to, you haven't mentioned the Vivian Gornick quotes and stand out. It's very important uh, to the theme of the book because Vivian Gornick was again arguing against romantic love, how a woman could not be involved with a man romantically, a romantic passion, and also go on to um, fulfill her complete potential. And that romantic passion was essentially destructive. And then, so that's that's one voice that's running through the novel and reflects the thinking of that time. But then I have the counter voice, which is Stendhal and various other people. Stendhal said, has said, there's a quote somewhere to the effect, love is the most important experience in my life. And I've spent my life pursuing love. So that's really the function of the quotes in a way is to to show this, these counter voices. But then I also had fun with the the reactions towards feminism of the period. Someone like George Stade saying that reading Kate Millett's sexual politics was having his testicles in a nutcracker and that kind
0: of thing. Hmm. Well, I guess some men were threatened.
1: Um. <laughs> they certainly were. And that's the, the, the uh, source of the character I called Nadine. Her successes, is that she wrote a book about that. And that is actually based on a real book written by someone called Natalie Gil- Gilson. It was called Dominus. And it was, it was about how men were claiming they'd become impotent from feminism.
0: Do you consider Jane Austen a feminist? would could we call people before the word was coined feminists anyway
1: well she was a proto-feminist i wouldn't call her that no but i think that one of the issues that uh the commune has in common with her work is the emphasis on money and that it's it's basically a neglected subject in a lot of contemporary fiction this uh main character leora doesn't have any money and she can't she can barely survive And uh, that's why I included all those quotes from Jane Austen and others um, talking about the importance of money and how essentially you have to be able to afford love. It's a luxury.
0: It's more important. I wish you'd warned me years ago. My guest on today's Lettered Low Paid at Large is Erica Abil. We're talking about. Her fifth book, which is a novel called *The Commune*, it is published by Adelaide Books. This is WBAI New York, ninety-nine point five FM, streaming live at wbai.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. You also send up the one-upmanship of the the Hamptons with descriptions of garish decor and trendy restaurants. There's even a character based on Edie Beale of *Great Gardens*.
1: Yes, well there are. Uh- there are a lot of characters, caveats, background characters who are based on real people. I'd say that's where the real people really exist in the novel, at least and their voices as well. So Edie Beale is there and she, she functions actually, she has a role in, in, in a, a rather convoluted little plot there towards act two, but there are other real people whose voices you see, you hear rather, uh, or you see, you see them at parties. One of them would be uh, Phyllis Chester, who wrote a wonderful book called Women in Madness, which held that women who were inconvenient in any way to the status quo were locked away in madhouses. So there's that character and a bunch of others who form a kind of a background, almost like a diorama of voices that reflect the attitudes of, of that period.
0: Oops, you dropped something. Uh, Uh,
1: Another one, uh, there's another character I wanted to mention besides uh, Edie Beale. uh, There were also characters like Jill Johnston. I have a scene, she was a a feminist uh, dance critic and also a a well-known lesbian. And she leaped naked into a pool at one of these fundraising parties out there. And I reproduced that scene. Ethel Skull is there in spirit as one of the women who gave fundraisers for for the march. Basically, these women uh, who were wealthy out there they were courted by uh, Gilda, but they were reluctant to sign on until they sensed that this was the future and they wanted piece of it. They wanted part of the excitement. That was uh, it was a very exciting uh, time for. For women and people generally because it was a they sensed a big sea change coming and uh i tried to capture that feeling of of, of excitement and, and everybody wanting in on it
0: would you have predicted the me too movement back then Ooh.
1: i think that they were there were earlier forms of it. i think one of the eerie uh relevancies of of the commune is that Me Too was already brewing back then in all the man-hating. The difference was that the man-hating there was it was more diffuse. It was more towards the, the patriarchy and the male oppressor. It, it, women really weren't in the workplace, so it wasn't about that. But uh, that is very obvious in the very first pages of the book. If you uh, look at the signs that I quote, mm. in the very first pages, when leora is first joining the march there are signs that say things like let's see uh don't cook dinner starve a rat today
0: Uh from
1: adam's rib to women's lib and penile servitude and human sacrifice don't get married so there was a a kind of a um a thread going through radical feminism of man-hating. It was actually called that. And I think that may have been the beginning of Me Too was a very early form of it, yes.
0: Has it surprised you to look back at those days and see both how much progress has been made and uh, because we have now have a a woman who's a vice president, uh, their same-sex marriage and a number of other things, and at the same time we have... uh, women's rights still being threatened as with the new Texas abortion law and other states that are talking about enacting similar legislation. Well, there's this, this conservative
1: faction in this country that uh, the Gilda character was very uh, aware of when she was leery about including lesbians, lesbianism in the movement. And she tried to shoot away because she sensed that faction out there and she sensed it correctly. However, I, I think that it, it's, it's more incredible to me, the quantum leap in consciousness and the way things have changed. Half, half the human race is now in the work world in a way they weren't at all 50 years ago. And at the same time that yes, much has not changed. For instance, uh, the double standard in beauty, the ageism in the entertainment world. But you look at the ad world, and I, I was looking at some of the things that um, Virginia Slim was an ad in those days, and you could never you could never hear anything like this again. It was um, slim and rich, cigarettes are slim and rich the way a, a woman should be. And really the culture has, has drastically changed. The quantum leap in consciousness is absolutely the
0: case. Well, I guess we expect a lot to happen after something important occurs. So for example, uh, the uh, the Women's Strike for Equality celebrated the 50th anniversary of the passing of the 19th Amendment. Uh, so... Uh, People expected a lot to change uh, over those 50 years. Uh, This book indicates that there was still a lot to be done. And uh, you have to wonder, have we made as much progress in the last 50 years as in the previous 50?
1: No, I think that what happened was there was a a tremendous acceleration, uh, a, a huge infusion of energy right around 1970 after that march. And, and now it's become uh, much more diffuse and it, it's not it's not as focused as it was then. That was a privileged time that I, I tried to recreate because it was it was focused on, on, on such a an, an important cause and there was so much passion surrounding it and there was so much resistance to it and there was so much triumph. It was a very very dramatic particular moment
0: but there was a women's March the day after Donald Trump was inaugurated
1: yes well that this is all continued but that was really in a different spirit this this was the founding march in 1970 mm-hmm. that completely transformed the culture so the uh, those later marches you know were, were more in, in the spirit of protests but the, the the march in 1970 was was in the spirit of affirmation
0: it was a celebration
1: to celebrate, mm-hmm. to confirm the mm-hmm. existence of feminism. And Friedan said something uh, that uh, stayed with me. She said, how did we have the nerve? Because they didn't know. They didn't know if anybody would show up. They didn't know if anyone was out there, if the women were out there to join in. And uh, they were proved right. And uh, essentially my novel, The Communion, is about the women who had the nerve
0: do you have another novel in the works? We're pretty much out of time. and I'm just curious whether you just...
1: Oh, yes, I do. Get to of work on another one
0: after you complete one.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. But it's sometimes hard because I'm back. I start laughing at my own characters from this one. Uh-huh. When I think of certain scenes, I just start laughing. It's, it's very dopey, really. But I figure that it's working well if I can laugh at my own stuff.
0: Erica Abil is the author of five books... The one we've been discussing is her latest a novel called The Commune, and it is published by Adelaide Books. Erica, thank you so much for being on our show today.
1: Oh, I love being here. Thank you.
0: And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to Barbara Kahn, who produced today's interview, to live engineer Reggie Johnson, and to Leonard Lopinett, largest executive producer Jesse Lent, for all of the great work that they do throughout the week. You can access our archive of over 500 shows at WBAI.org. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is Lopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take a moment to ask you to support the station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all of the other great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this whole thing going because our listeners are our only source of support. We don't take grants. We don't, well, we're 100% listener supported. So I hope you'll step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to wbaiorg or by calling 212-209-2950 to keep the kind of unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Again, the number, 212-209-2950. Please do it right now. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. But And that would be just $10 a month or more, whatever you're comfortable with. But however you donate, please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. And uh, my big thanks to all the listeners who are helping to keep us on the air with their generosity. We hope you can join us again on Monday when Derwood Zelke, the founder of the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development will join us to discuss his new book, Cut Super Climate Pollutants Now. Uh, you won't want to miss it. Have a great weekend.